E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. John Paolo Venica of Venica, the winery in the Friuli in the Colio. Hello, sir. How are you? Hi. Thank you for having me. Very nice to see you. So where you are in Nicolio, it's in Friuli, which is about an hour from Venice. The amazing thing is that we are just one hour and 20 minutes from Venice. It's one hour and 20 minutes. It's still, for the public, it's a mystery. They don't know it's so close and it's so easy to get. Your winery goes back to the 1930s. Yes, that's when my great-grandfather bought the winery in 19, uh, 1929. That was under Italy because my grandfather lost the property during the First World War. He was Austrian fighting against Italy, and then he was able to raise money and buy something only in 1929. Because the whole area has shifted in terms of borders and provinces based on the two world wars. I feel also confused still today how things are going because, you know, there have been so many times if you look at through the centuries, 15, 16, 17 centuries, how many times the, the things switch here or there, Venetian Republic, Austrian. So, yeah, it's very confusing. But definitely the First World War was something important to decide the board and to decide many things that happened later on. Originally, the family holdings were smaller. There was a restaurant for a number of years, and I feel like there was growth over time. My father and my uncle, they grew up in the restaurant environment. That's what created the money, the financial uh, investment to buy the first vineyards and to make the first wine. And then when the winery became more popular, and I would attribute that to the 80s, early 90s. That's why they were able to move on that way through the restaurant and, and growing little by little anyway. Mostly you're focused on white wines. Yeah, 90%. We were doing more in the past, but I feel like Friuli, at the certain point Friuli, I think in the 80s, Merlot was somewhere close to 45%, just Merlot, 70, 80s, and now I guess it's only 10%. So for us, the rule is the same. We are making now maybe 8, 10% of what we do. Merlot, Cabernet Franc, still popular in Friuli, a little bit of Refosco, Merlot, tiny bit, I make two barrels each, and Schiobettino too. You're in a cooler area than, say, Butrio, 
which uh, warmer for sure. Really known more for red sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why, yeah, Miani, I think, and those other producers out there, it's easier for them to make big reds just because it's easier to get the right maturation. I think that in October, at the beginning of October, we pretty much always have some rain. So I think if you have warmer in general, it's easier. But vintages could help too. Like 97 was an early flowering and the season went with a good temperature and so the time of the ripening was longer more than 20 days if i remember well so you know that would help too but in general of course warmer places like Budrio, it's easier to make rats but there's also some skio patino in your area as well see which is cool it's a cool area on the prepoto side especially uh, many producers are specialized in uh, skio patino there is denoteca dello skio patino uh, but if I have to tell you which are my favorite producer out there to make Schiopettino, I would say for sure a couple of names in Perpotto, like, uh, for example, Le Due Terre. I like the Schiopettino. Ronco di Cialla is making very good Schiopettino and amazing all the vintages. You know, they can dig into 20 years old Schiopettino. Vignette di Dulina making a good product and Ronco del Niemitz, I would say. Those are the ones. But you see, the styles are so different. So, I mean, we're not close at all to Burgundy to say, okay, there is a grape and you have all this. Uh, I don't know if it's really the soil or how the winemakers are good in doing what they're doing. There's a few reasons why Friuli may be less zoned in than a place like Burgundy today. And one of them is that it was often a land of mixed agriculture. It wasn't necessarily just rolling hills of vines there was multiple crops and that's really only changed in the last century and there was big replants in the 60s sometimes to international grape varieties that were funded by the eu and there's a mix of international french grape varieties and also native grape varieties that kind of coexist and we've also seen ups and downs of market trends which you just alluded to so in the 80s and 90s the reds especially the Bordeaux grape varieties were really big from Friuli, and now we're seeing a big shift into Prosecco. Yeah, that's a new thing, Prosecco. But I've seen, I've seen quite a few fashions, moments of, uh, you know, emphasis for what the market was asking. And uh, truly, as you said, we're coming from, uh, like the rest of Italy, more or less, except probably from Piedmont and somewhere in Tuscany, where... But every, everywhere, promiscuous agriculture was normal because we were farmers. My grandfather was a farmer. And so we, they needed to, do some, to live, to survive. That's the right word to describe what they were doing. And uh, that's why we have uh, any kind of fruit tree that is possible to grow in Friuli. They needed to, in May, cherry, to pick the cherry, uh, put in the bucket, bicycle, or later on, the bull or the truck and go to Cividale, the nearest market, to sell the cherries. And that happened with everything else. Plums, figs, uh, apples, uh, pears. Uh, our famous vineyard, the single vineyard, Ronco delle Mele, it's Hill of the Apples. Where the big landslide and half of the hills lie down and my grandfather, with my grandfather, I had to plant uh, apple trees to make soil stable. And they choose apples just because for them was a great exposition. Of course, we don't use the apples anymore, but I still eat the apples today, if that, <laughs> it's good. But you, you're right, I've seen many fashion things going on, and the first one I remember is uh, Oak. Everybody was trying to make wines for Parker, 
Everybody was trying to make Burgundy in their mind, but truly they were making wines for Parker. And I've seen so many wines made in new oak, uh, small barrels that did not fit what it's my idea of Friuli. And I guess if you test them today, and I had a couple of times, you know, you, you figure it's not the right fit. Because after 20 years, 10 years, you, you know, what's going on? It's getting better the wine or not. The Prosecco. I'm not sure about that because, you know, it's a good 20%, I think, in Friuli planted today. I don't know if where it's planted is really um, something else, more Friulano in a way, could have been done. I feel that the thing is growing too much. And at a certain point, I guess, there will be a certain kind of restriction to that. I hope there won't be a bigger problem for Friuli. And we've seen differences in the Appalachian rules over time. I mean, they started out pretty clear in terms of the different zones of Coli Orientale and Colio and the grape varieties often on the label, which is helpful, <laughs> especially for export markets. And things are pretty rational, I think, in terms of the, the DOCs. But we've seen some changes in terms of a Colio wine or differences that have come up over time. You're right. I have two feelings about this. One part of me is excited that, oh, yeah, wow, we are in a region incredible. If you're a sommelier, you can literally find everything. Everything good, I mean, everything good. And you can learn a lot and you can see many things. On the other way, I still feel a bit, I would like to skip in the next 20 years and see what's going on. Because I feel that somehow we are still, we're still trying too much because we don't know very well what the way, what's the precise path. But I think it's just normal because it's a young region. We have 40 years at best. So I guess that's the right time to understand better. To go in places and be, oh, Friuli. You know, when I was, I would like to say the word Friuli and having that word helping me instead of having me helping the word Friuli in a way, you know, but hopefully one day we'll get there. Because I can see how the diversity of the region, especially in terms of not just soil types and where vineyards are, but just grape varieties, like the sheer number of grape varieties, that's a benefit in the terms of there's a lot of depth to the region. There's all kinds of different producers. If a market for something is strong and there's a lot offered on the table, but at the same time, unless someone knows the region well, it lacks that kind of signature grape variety like Piemonte is associated with Nebbiolo. And yeah, I agree. And also, you know, after finally drinking Pinot Grigio and Sauvignon Blanc, which is fine, it's great, but they might be a little bit more brave and, and to dig in a Ribola Gialla, in a Malvasia Estreana, or why not finally Tocca Friulano, which for me is honestly the real only great uh, flagship that we have. If we talk about wine with a personality in a contest with some numbers too. I think Friulano is the only one. But as you know, you can see it's decreasing too. People are taking the Friulano out because it's difficult, because nobody is knocking to the door asking for Friulano. Believe me, nobody. So usually I lure people say, okay, you like the Grigio, you like this one, please, can you take a little bit of Friulano? And they eventually will love it, no? But still, it's this kind of uh, pushing, no? 
Well, we see that with a couple of different grape varieties in the Friuli. I mean, Tazalange, Picali, like, you know, very diminished from what they were historically. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Grafosco also was a very important grape and then became so reduced dramatically just because it's a difficult grape. A grape with a lot of tannins, hard to manage. Pignolo, I guess, disappeared at this point. I don't see little, very little Pignolo around. For me, often there's an ageability question if I don't know the producer, because I feel that some of the wines are really designed to be drunk on release or six months to two years from release. And some of the wines can age quite well. And I've been surprised several times when you've opened older bottles or other producers have opened older bottles, how well they've really done. Because I think, especially when I first started my career, I think a lot of the emphasis was on the kind of wines from Friuli that you purchased and drank that night. And that was the idea. I think the idea is still today, at least rarely they make it through one year, I feel. Uh, In Italy, if I do not present the wines at the end of April, they're not available for the market. They're, they're really mad because the season starts, the good weather, and they want to get started. And there is zero mentality of drinking wines that are one year older. They are not perceived as a, as a value. It's difficult to know which wines age, which producer makes wine that age, which vintage age. So I guess that getting stick to the freshest is always better. But for my wines, I would always recommend at least a couple of years. It can just be better in a couple of years. I think we had the 89 Pinot Grigio together. Uh, but those come from another era. At the time, first of all, the production was bigger. We were producing more per vines. There was another idea behind. But the climate was different too. It was normal to have wines. If you look at those labels, 12, um, truly I feel 11.5 was just a label 12. Higher acidity, maybe 8, sometimes I perceive higher than that. And for sure those wines are fresher today to compare others. And then we have seen uh, global warming, I feel like everywhere else. And late uh, 90s, I would say 96 was the last uh, fresh in a way, but was also very rainy too. So 97, 99, you're seeing these warmer and bigger vintages, just hotter. And with acidity, that definitely dropped. With the balance in the vineyards that I feel has been broken by the change of the weather. And I feel that also caused many acidity to drop. What time period do you think that the Veneca wines have really shown well to age? It really depends by the vintage. I'm surprised myself today for example, 2006, that everybody loved, was super ready, concentrated, focused, with a decent acidity, and we thought the wine would age a long time. And instead, in four or five years, we saw the wine showing more fatigue to compare others. And instead, 2004, that was a much more generous vintage, lighter in a way, is showing well today. 2002, very rainy, is showing well today. So, you know, still unpredictable in a way. Rain is a major feature of the environment, and sometimes erosion is a major feature because of the rain. We have huge uh, problems of uh, erosion. But if you want to know the truth from my point of view, it's because in the last, let's say, 15, 20 years, we've been understanding better how the structure of Ponca, of the Marns, of Friuli are, 
and uh, how the hills are made and how the vineyards should be made. So if you look around, some vineyards have not been made in the right places, not because it was a bad disposition, but just because the structure of the ponca would not allow a good uh, stability. Even after that, the curves that the ponca make inside the hills, if you could dig uh, deeper, 5-10 meters, you don't know if there is a curve, the water comes out. So you never know if the water gets in one place, come out in the other side, and it takes years. No? And today we know it better because we made mistakes, but we still have a lot of landslide. And Friuli is the most rainy region of Italy. And I guess that plays into the decision to plant whites, because you guys are, for example, planting more Fulano today when a lot of people are pulling it out. And I guess in a rainy region where you need to harvest earlier, planting mostly whites makes sense for you. It makes sense for us because we believe in, in making more whites. And for, I wouldn't be able to make red because we said the vineyards are too cold. And we know better how white grapes goes in specific vineyards. So we cannot plant Tocca, Frulano, Ribola, Gialle, Malvasia everywhere. But those are the grapes that we are planting the most in the last five years. And we have good vineyards to plant those. We are more safe to plant those. <laughs> I don't know if the market is asking for um, all that we are planting, but it's something we believe. Just because we have the soil to make it, and it doesn't make sense to, to put more Pinot Grigio or more Sauvignon Blanc for the dimension we have. What have you learned about planting those grape varieties to sites? What's the difference between Sauvignon, Robola Frulano, Malvasia Istriano, when you're planting them, what's important to think about? For cooler, uh, richer soils, both PG and uh, Sauvignon Blanc make sense for the kind of style we do. Fresh, crispy, with the hydrogen ability profile. For Malvasia, Tocafrulano, Ribola Gialla, we need soil less rich. We need soil with more limestone in general. Not because we definitely need the highest percentage of limestone, but because I feel the balance overall is better. This is the main, the main, uh, the main difference for the style we do. If I guess somebody is trying to make another style, those sites we're using for those grapes would be used for Sauvignon Blanc for sure. What have been the changes at the family winery since you got back? So you originally were thinking maybe to go work in a restaurant. The restaurant closed about twenty years ago. You made the decision to work in viticulture and enology. And so what's been your own progression and what's been the progression of the winery since that change? Hopefully I was able to bring back the right feedback. Because, you know, every time I was coming back from travel, from selling wine in U.S. or other markets, I was always coming back with the need of making better wines. Because that's what they were asking me. I was not going around saying, oh, here is Venica, please. Who are you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> nobody. Nobody. You're nobody. Okay. I don't know you. Hmm? Okay. I know you don't know me. So where you are? Friuli. I don't know Friuli. Okay. So, you know, I was always coming back with this idea that we desperately need to make uh, better wines because the world is huge. And the amount of wine that is made out there, of good wine that is made out there, it's a lot. And, you know, the prices are very competitive. So I always went back with this, with this idea, with this person pushing this pressure. Or we have to do better in the vineyard, in the soil, everywhere. I think that's what the most important thing is. And I feel in some colleagues of mine that do not travel, I feel that this is something that is missed at this point. Right now, I think everybody's 
quite happy. The market is going well for everybody. There is not a big crisis in a way, so not many have wine unsold. But I feel there is not the complete understanding that it's better to get out as much as possible, everybody. And uh, I know it's expensive, and believe me, the last thing I want to do is another 12, 13 hours on a flight. But, you know, it's important to do it and to show ourselves as much as we can. And talk about the same thing, maybe, over and over. But it's important. But back to the changes at the winery. I mean, when you kind of got back and started working at the winery, it was quite a bit more red wine was being produced, right? See, so uh, at the time, actually, where they were pushing me to sell uh, more reds because we were doing more reds. And especially the reserves, they were expensive in a way at the time. They were Merlot, Refosco, made in uh, Barrique. And those wines, for sure, were not meant to be drunk right away. So I was always coming back with this feedback of, we don't like the wines. The wines are not ready. People were drinking New York, ripe uh, California reds. So why would they drink my wines? They maybe today actually are interesting, you know? In a way, we opened a 90, a 95, those stuff, it's interesting. But, you know, at that point, no. So I was always coming back with this brutal uh, reports, you know, and I was seeing, like, the evil one. What do you mean we are making... Uh, what are we doing wrong, no? Just because they were not understanding what the right path is. Which not mean do not make the wine in that way. Ripe style and almost sweet. Means that we needed to... And that's what we've done. Meaning that we needed to find the, the place for... Well, it was better to plant at the time instead of those reds to plant Friulano or Sauvignon Blanc. That's actually the biggest change that happened. For example, if you go al Capello in Udine, in an osteria, the white wine they give you, if you ask for a glass of wine, it's Friulano, a glass of Friulano. It comes from a, with a slice of prosciutto crudo. So in the mentality of people, that's a real link uh, to the tradition. People talk Friulano, which is a language, and that's very important. I feel right now the grape with the biggest potential because it's there. And there are vineyards that are suited to be planted with Friulano. It's Friulano. Friulano is the thing because as it's on, it's a great texture, has a great approachability, and there are decent numbers right now to see the wine around. What about vine material? Do you find old vines for these different grape varieties? The clone that we can buy today... From my perspective, they are too much selected, over-selected. They are getting too poor, and there is not enough diversity. So I feel that only digging and taking all the, vine, the old vines and replanting them with the consequence of bringing virus too, because our own old vines has many virus, which are not bad virus, but each vine has two or three combinations of different things that sometimes could be, can be problematic. We have a lot of Maldelesca, for example, so we have a problem, but still, it's way better to compare just buying a brand new clone. Having no idea how, how that is going to adapt into your vineyards. And what about vintages? What's happened recently? Very much capricious. We had hot vintages, terribly hot vintages, like 13. Uh, we had the dry season, like no rain in June, July, August. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's tough. We had the rain all, all year long in 2014. No light, rain, July, August, September. We lost a lot of uh, botrytes. 
so very difficult to manage, very difficult to understand and to predict. So I feel that we have to be every year readier to whatever can be possibly happen from the most marvelous uh, season to a nightmare immediately or opposite, maybe from a nightmare season to a very good one suddenly, just because August and September, they turn out very well. And uh, so that's the vintage we're going. But I'm not complaining because every time I look, there is a season in Burgundy. I've seen that, you know, they're doing much worse than us. I mean, they're seeing the same thing, but it's multiplied. It's like uh, estremizzato to the extremism, no? But I feel it's a little bit everywhere. With the winemaking, what happens when the grapes come into the cellar for the different grape varieties? My uncle has a precise idea of vinification through the years. And he likes, and I can tell how the wines are made, that are very precise. And that's how he is. It's very precise in what he does. Um, there is an idea that came out, I think, through the years. Testing the wines, looking how the wines they are, asking how the wines they are going. There is a precise concept behind what should be done what should we achieve no and i feel we adjust that every year considering the vintage warmer vintages see less maceration we try to do at least 12 24 hours of uh, distemmed cold maceration that works for us on everything except uh, the Pinot Grigio. If you do the Pinot Grigio, we get rosé. So the Pinot Grigio, we just squeeze it. There's uh, too concentrated in a way. So we squeeze it, juice is there, and goes out. Everything else we try to extract as much as we can before fermentation. What about the approach to oak aging? Does that vary with the heat of the vintage as well? Or? We have a percentage of larger cask that we use. It changes year by year, depending what we pick first, what we pick less, what's behind. I don't think it makes sense to put their recipes like, oh, this is done like this, this is done like this. The, the larger cask is something that you use just because you have the sensation that is developing better the fruit, the tear. At a certain point, you realize that you have to take it out, you take it out, and you put it back to stainless steel. Are there general things that are more helpful with one grape variety than another when it comes to use of oak or lees or... We use leaves, yeah. We move the leaves uh, quite a bit for a couple of months to prevent, to protect the juice than to do serious extraction because they're pretty clean. We don't have so heavy leaves that when we move them, they will get more profound and make the wines rounder. We're not looking for that for sure. At least it's not something I tell we should do because actually we have the opposite problem thinking about the warmer vintages. I want to have more acidity in my wines. I feel we need more acidity. That these days is probably balanced with the texture of what we get from the soil. You have this kind of saltiness to the wines that is pretty nice. But we are working in the way to get more acidity, to have more freshness, to improve the drinkability, actually. That's uh, very important. Something we do in the cellar that I think is remarkable in a way and, and or strange for somebody probably is that we capture the carbon dioxide from fermentation. We started in 2003. We see that Boyre Sandri was doing it and we use the carbon dioxide in the press. So basically we don't have the CO2 in the press. And the final presses, we don't need to separate because they are totally oxidized, are the parts with most color. It's like if you make a green juice and you put in a box of carbon dioxide, it never turns brown. That allowed us to use less sulfites. Not because we hate sulfite, but because 
the same for our wines i felt that many times especially friulano the same amount of sulfites make uh, some part of the wines to taste a little bit bitter and decreasing it we have more freshness and more drinkability this is a system that allowed us to bottle the wines with maximum 80 of uh, total sulfites less for some wine much less 50 but that's average you know instead of i don't know 150 200 per, per million like many do I bet that does make them drinkable earlier, and also you still retain the freshness, which is, at least in the New York sommelier world, one of the key bywords, I think, right now. Yeah, um, I don't know about uh, ageability, you know. We're, we're doing it, we see how the vintages are. We don't have the, uh, we say, counterpart to... to. You don't have something historically like that that you can pull from the cellar and see how it's drinking. See, we, can, we don't have one way and the other made to compare. But we feel that what should be done right now. And uh, we never had problem of uh, Primox. I don't think that Friuli really had problem of Primox, unless specific producer, but because they were doing a style, they were doing to achieve something. So they had this kind of problems. In general, it's not something that happened. It's very re- related to the vintage, to what's going on. So this is not basically an issue. It would be interesting to see if the system would age more the wines or would kill the wines would uh, make the wines older before i don't know it's interesting to me because a lot of the people that i've spoken to who have said that they preserve more co2 so that they can use less sulfur are people who make red wine so it's interesting to me because i have this pet theory that in many ways white wine is becoming more like red wine production and red wine production is becoming more like white wine production if you think about some real key producers how they work and it's funny that the outside of the this is outside of the orange wine conversation mm-hmm. that it does seem like there's a move towards the middle for both colors sometimes with some of the techniques that are being used because I definitely see people in Italy making red wines with the precision that I think would have been associated with white wines from a place like Friuli right. twenty years ago right and some of them are quite famous wines uh, also in Burgundy too you know. And so it's interesting to me to see that back and forth. To see the back and forth. I guess that behind there is an idea. And so everybody's trying to follow a way to perceive that idea, to grasp that uh, the chance, the possibility, that result, uh, you know, and changing little by little every year and see how it's going on. But it's interesting. You were actually right. Yeah. Makes totally sense. You know, the question is for me. You know, I don't know much about, uh, I'm not sure if I know enough about wine and to, to say it, but are they looking for precision or the way they are, they're working is giving more precision to their land? You know what I mean? I, I don't know if that would be the answer to, to get for me. That would be the answer to get. What they're doing is their own, I mean, you're testing them, their hand, or through the hand, you are testing a better expression of the soil. That's what I would like to find out and see if there is 1% that can apply to what I do. Would be would really be amazing for me. And what else would you like to get done in the next, say, 10 years? You're going to move into being 50 in 10 years, so between 40 and 50. Why you want to ruin my day? I <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I feel... so. First of all, I have in mind to do a little project with Southside Venica because making wine within the same brand, I think it can be very confusing. So I would like to make another name and to make other stuff 
fun stuff that may might be also weird. Like uh, I had a very fun uh, Pinot Gris made in uh, in Amphora and came from uh, a producer in uh, in Oregon. So I would like to experiment uh, things to see, you know, just to throw there. No, it's not about volume. It's not about making money. It's not about anything. It's just to have a possibility to experiment and to see what the result, what's the impact on the other side. Just a little laboratory, you know. I like a lot the wines that Miani or Ronco de are doing, different styles, but the idea behind that, Maceration. I, I would like to do something like that to see in yeah, definitely in ten years something developing. It's a little lab, as I said. That's something I would like to do. But that also might be helpful to see what can be done within Venica, no? If there is a, a good result or no. That would be interesting, yeah. So in the future there really might be a Venica and Venica. And Venica. Can multiply forever. <laughs> we are pretty big in the family, so yeah, we are. We have a sister, cousin, so yeah. Thankfully, because otherwise, I guess it's difficult. I feel that the biggest, uh, the best uh, wineries is where there is a family behind. But no, we also we are we are, we are in a very interesting moment in Friuli because, beside a few exceptions, very small wineries, and even in those cases, you know, there was there was something tragic going on. I don't see right now a good number. I cannot count uh, three wineries in Friuli where the um, generational passage have been successful. They've always been going on. Look at what's happened to, you know, 10 years ago was Dorigo, was famous at the time. They sold, they, but now there is a brand, but they don't have the vineyards anymore. Therefore, Schiopetto was in 60, Schiopetto, they started with the first press. He was traveling, looking in Germany, and uh, the family sold the company to another winery, you know. Um, bigger brands, I don't know if that didn't happen yet. So there is no really, I don't have in my mind one or two wineries that represent and put some numbers, consistent numbers, the region where this happened, no? And, you know, that would be curious to see uh, what the future will bring. Because I, on the other aspect, that's why I was saying that the small producer should get out more. Because I see many corporations, as you said, without mentioning who are in Italy, that uh, both uh, invested in Friuli. And I guess it's the same thing, right? So that would be a very important... If there is something I wish when I would be 50, is to say this, to see multiply successful generational uh, exchange of uh, the torch with a new generation that has a precise idea of what he's doing. Maybe changing a little bit, maybe going on the same path, but definitely with some, uh, with some awareness. John Paolo Venica would like to see some family continuity in Friuli, and he'd like to see a chance for some fun as well. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. John Paolo Venica of Venica, and maybe another Venica one day in the future. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, 
and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.